I kind of uh, grew up in a culture of of church where you uh, pastors would come for five years or so and then go someplace else. You know, God would call them someplace else and this kind of thing. And uh, to to think, so I kind of was in the ministry under that. Al, you probably went through that too with with different ministers. They'd be there for a season and then gone and and. Uh, and then I remember distinctly when, uh, you know, we look at the scripture, Abraham went, Moses went, everybody went. And I can remember distinctly uh, being here and, and the Lord said, are you willing to stay? And uh, that's, that's a different kind of calling to be willing to stay because, you know, especially after 25 years. And we moved here in 1985, so we had years. Some of you have known us for 30 plus years in this room and uh, to not have screwed up is a pretty good deal in, in that length of time. I'm not saying I haven't screwed up, but uh, it's not been big enough to, uh, to cost me too bad. And, uh, and I do have friends in, in a lot of places. And, and it's such a privilege to, to live in this community. You know, uh, always my prayer is, is that Central, uh, we know that, that we are but a cell in something much bigger than we are. And we look in this community. I just think about the doors that have opened up, even what Alan has been able to do with uh, over at, uh, with the athletic department over here at Round Rock High and then with the Round Rock Express, just incredible uh, favor that he has had and as he has worked in those particular areas and then other ministries out of here that, that uh, go out. And it's just, it's just uh, an honor to be a part of that kind of thing, and it's just a God thing. And so next week to be able to celebrate is, is really huge, and for us, uh, we will have one service, as Alan said, at 10 o'clock. You, we do need servants, so please sign up to serve. You can do it online or you can uh, um, take it back there after the service. We, we just need you to, to serve in particular areas to make sure everything does flow smoothly. And, but it's one service, 10 o'clock, no Bible fellowships. Meal is there afterwards. Just bring a dessert. Everything else is taken care of. And uh, there's going to be bounce houses and stuff, so while you're eating, you don't have to run off. The kids have got something to do and just to be able to enjoy. And, and invite somebody to come with you. This is a good way just to kind of uh, be introduced to Central a little bit and in, in what's going on here. But uh, last week and this week, heading up to the, the, the time next week, uh, I've just kind of taken it as an opportunity for me to go before the Lord as we look time Central uh, you know, God has evolved us, so to speak, into who we are, and uh, but that doesn't mean we stay who we are. We move on ahead. And uh, I, as I was just praying through some things uh, last week, just kind of uh, talking to you about the church um, when God's Spirit invades what it looks like. But uh, this particular day, uh, I wanted to talk to you about something that's very dear to me. I, I was very privileged. to. I grew up in nine months before I was born, man, we were going to church and uh, was baptized at a little church in Waco called Beverly Hills Baptist Church. And uh, there's a, a place, if you ever know much about Waco, there's an area called Beverly Hills. And that's where I was born, lived there for a while until we moved, moved away from there. But Beverly Hills Baptist Church, Waco, is where I came to Christ, was baptized. And uh, Baptist Church was, was in my uh, lineage, in my tradition of growing up in that area. But God has just allowed me, I think a lot of it was just through friendships and being involved in student ministry and having a heart for guys that are doing everything. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Not all Christians are Baptists, okay? I just thought I would let you in on that. And, uh, and there's a lot of Baptists that aren't Christians. I thought I'd throw that in there, too. But, uh, 
but it, it's good just to have people from different streams because I learn. I'm a student, uh, not only the scriptures, but I'm a student of, of uh, the way church is done and these kind of things. And I just thought about some things that I learned along the way. Through my Baptist heritage, though, I learned about a love for the word and a love for evangelism and missions. I mean, that that's what, you know, even my friends in different streams would say they came to Christ through a Baptist. I mean, because uh, just the emphasis on evangelism and and and, uh, and doing that. But I learned through uh, my Bible church friends a deeper love for the Word of God, just verse by verse walking through it. I really learned a, a whole lot from that. Um, from my Pentecostal and charismatic friends, I learned about a good freedom of worship to to come before the Lord and enjoy His presence and to to come with zeal and exuberance before the Lord. I love that. Uh, also from my uh, Methodist and Lutheran, Lutheran friends, I, I learned about a heart for social causes, to, uh, to get involved, to not turn a blind eye to things that have injustice uh, in, our, in, our, in our system. I learned from my Catholic friends a reverence and awe that we seem to lose so often, but I, I loved the reverence and awe that I learned from them. I also, from my Presbyterian friends, I learned about grace. I learned about that the Lord has offered grace to all of mankind, and we are to receive that and walk in that grace. But when Pam and I, we were high school sweethearts, and when we first started dating, uh, I was going to the Baptist church, but she, her family was going to a Nazarene church. I didn't know much about Nazarenes, and, uh, um, but uh, she would come to the Baptist church some, and I would go to the Nazarene church with her some, and they would do something called a brush arbor uh, time, which would be a revival services to go to and this kind of stuff. But one of the things that I um, fell in love with, with the Nazarene church, was the altar. And uh, and they would do altar calls in a way that people would literally come to an altar and they would kneel. And I saw, I saw not only brokenness, but I saw healing and I saw... Um, uh, a, a way of coming before the Lord in reverence, and, and it and it just stuck struck a chord in me because um, not every time that we walk an aisle do we need to talk to anybody. We just need to talk to God, and I need some way of stepping out to do that. So I really fell in love with the altar, and I, and I know we're li- we live in a different different day. And I read about blogs, and I hear guys talk about why they don't do altar calls and this kind of stuff, and I respect that. I really do. But there's something in me that uh, I, I really believe as long as I have the opportunity, I think I want I, I feel led to call people to a response, not to come to me by any stretch, but to be able to, if the Holy Spirit starts talking, you don't have to do it in a church building, but if the Holy Spirit starts talking to you, that you have an opportunity to respond. And so uh, that's just part of me, and from day one of Central, we, we have... Uh, believed in having altar calls, an opportunity to pray, an opportunity to respond. And uh, and these steps, I, I say it all the time, these steps become an altar of you to come to. But we don't understand altars very well. And so this morning I wanted to kind of uh, talk to you a little bit about out of Scripture. And I, wanna, I want you to go with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. It may seem like a strange place to go to talk about this, but um, I, I really feel like this is where the Lord... Uh, wants us today in 1 Kings chapter 18. And let me give you a little background, uh, and then I'll, I'll read the rest of the passage to you. 
What's happening is, in fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Israel, we went up on Mount Carmel. And to be up on Mount Carmel and you see the rocks and the, and the sparse trees and this kind of stuff, it's kind of a neat place to go to. Whether it was actually the place where this, where we're going to talk about, took place, I don't know, but we were up close to that area somewhere. But uh, there was a, there's a prophet by the name of Elijah. What I love about Elijah is in the book of James in the New Testament, James was a brother of Jesus and he wrote a, a, a brief letter in the New Testament. In James chapter 5, it talks about praying and we pray for the sick and they're healed and we anoint them with oil. And we confess our sins one to another. And then he says this, Elijah, a man just like us, that he prayed and it rained. Now, that always blew me away because we take the people in the Bible and we put them up here, right? And you and me are down here. That's what we kind of do. But James says, Elijah, a man just like us. In other words, a man of flesh and blood. He had an earth suit just like we do. And this is what he did. He prayed and God moved. You know what that does? It lets me know that God can still answer those prayers from us today. And we want to pray those prayers of faith to see what can happen. But what happened with Elijah is an incredible story, and I just want to talk to you about a highlight of it. We're not going to dig so deep into it, but I want to give you just some background, and then I want to, I want to pick up the Scriptures to read to you. But what has happened is, is there was a king of Israel by the name of Ahab, okay? Uh, and Ahab had a life that was up and down, up and down, up and down, mostly teetering towards going down. And part of his biggest problem is he had a wife by the name of Jezebel. You've heard that before. Jezebel was from Sidon, and she was a, a, a woman that introduced all kind of pagan rituals and false gods, Baals and Asherahs, fertility cults, which was full of sensuality, and brought all of this in to, to um, Israel. Ahab, this being his wife, was heavily influenced. There was time he would want to do the right thing, but then his... his uh, relationship with his wife and these pagan deities would bring him down. And uh, Elijah was the prophet during that day. And uh, Ahab did not like Elijah because Elijah would, would tell him the truth and Ahab didn't want to hear the truth because it made him miserable to know what the truth was and not walk in it. He wasn't willing to walk in it. Well, what happened was is that um, Elijah finally came. That they were in the midst of a drought, okay? I mean, we're talking about a huge drought. No, no water hardly, and the people were famished. It was just happening. This drought was taking place. The drought, hear me on this one. The, the physical drought they were having was just a symbol of the spiritual drought that was taking place in the nation. And so what happened was is that Elijah now challenges these prophets of Baal because here's the deal. God, it says in the Scriptures, God was desiring for it to rain. But he wasn't just going to pour this rain out. He wanted to do it in such a way that the people would know that he is God. So what Elijah did is he challenged the prophets of Baal, there were 450, and the prophets of Asherah, there were 400 of those. He was going to challenge them to a contest on Mount Carmel, okay? And that's where I want to pick it up. And remember, we're talking about altars today as we get into this. But we're going to pick it up in verse 20 you got a good background there, so let me read a little bit, and you follow along. I'm actually reading in the New Living Translation this year, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, today. I'm, I'm using it this year in some of my readings. Uh, my study is, is usually done through the NIV and the ESV and using the original languages and that kind of stuff. But, but I just wanted to read this version to you today. 
So um, verse 20 says, So Ahab, we know who he is, king, summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it is Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Remember at the Alamo when they drew the line in the sand? That's what Elijah's doing here. He's drawing the line in the sand. If it's God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. You're going to make a choice. And then verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. He's going to set the game plan here. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he is away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. Ultimate trash talk from Elijah. You know, he, 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 he knew how to trash talk, and he was coming against them right at this point. Verse 28, So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Let me stop just for a moment. Please, you've got to see this picture. Because it's easy to get onto the prophets of Baal. They, they were worshiping sensuality. They were worshiping a fertility God. They were, they, but let me tell you, they were committed. You know, you can com- be committed and sincere and be sincerely wrong. But they were committed. They were devout. They were cutting themselves. They were dancing around. They were showing zeal to their God. They were going at it with everything that's in them. And they were, they were dancing around and they placed it on the altar and they were crying out sincerely that Baal would do something. And, and, and what happens is, I think it's one of the most haunting verses in the scripture. It says that there was no sound, no reply, no response. Now, let me get personal just a moment. I think God always gives us warnings in scriptures. I look at many times in the church, especially in America, we're zealous, we're committed, we're sincere, we're sacrificial. But it seems like we're doing it unto ourselves and what we're getting is no, no response and no results. And sometimes instead of comparing ourselves to Elijah, we ought to compare ourselves to the prophets of Baal and what we're doing. And I wrote 
I wrote something down the other day just as I came under conviction as I was going through this. I thought, what if central for 25 years we were zealous and devoted and demonstrative and drew a crowd, but there was no sound, no reply, or no response from God? We can say, yeah, but Mark, there's a lot of good things happens. But, you know, sometimes we worship the efforts of man. We worship the past. We worship a lot of things. And we're very zealous about that. We're committed to it. And we're willing to come and we do the religious thing. But yet, Paul told Timothy, he said, you hold to a form of religiosity, but you've denied the power thereof. And I wonder sometimes if we don't run into that. And we're not guilty of that. But the story doesn't end there. It goes on. Let's pick it back up in verse 30. It says, Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took twelve stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, Do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, Now do it a third time. So they did it as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. What were they short of? Water. They were in the midst of a drought. What does Elijah do? Flood it with water. These people had to look at him and think, if this doesn't work, bro, you're gone. We're going to take you down because, look, listen, he is flooding the altar. Verse 36, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this in your, at your command. O oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Answer God, not, not to puff me up, but God, answer in such a way that these people may know that you are God and that you're calling them back. Immediately. The fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, this was their response. You ready? They fell face down on the ground and they cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley, and he killed them there. But look at what their response was. They fell down on their face before God to the ground, and they cried out, He is God. They didn't say, Oh, Elijah's great! They said, He is God. And the fire had fallen. I look forward to our disciple now this year because their theme is based around fire. I can't imagine everything that's going to come out of that study. But we're looking at the fire of God fell. 
you know, I already told you about the prophets of Baal and what they did, but we look at Elijah, and you know the first thing after Elijah taunted the prophets of Baal, it's just part of his personality, I guess, but, but when it came time for his turn, look at the first thing he did. It says that he rebuilt the altar that had been torn down. The place of worship, the place of sacrifice, the place of offerings unto God had been torn down. It had been neglected. This one thing that represented their worship had been neglected and had been torn down. And so the first thing he did is he rebuilt the altar. But what was the purpose of an altar? I just want to throw out to you a couple of things as we look at this. If we're going to talk about, we, we believe that an altar is important. What was an altar? First of all, it was a place of worship. It was a place to where you submitted to one greater than yourself. The word altar, uh, or the word worship is worship. There's someone worthy of worship and you come with it. it. Come to an altar literally means to kiss the ring of the king. And you're coming to, to do that. You're submitting yourself to one greater than yourself. And that's what would take place at an altar. And in the Old Testament temple, if you know anything about that, what happened was is that you would come up, there would be outer courts, but when you were going into the holy place, you had to go by way of the altar. There had to be that worship that was going to take place even as you came in to the holy places. The priests would go in there. So the first thing about an altar, it's a place of worship. Secondly, though, it's a place where things die and dead things come to life. It's a place where things die, but dead things come to life. Here's what I mean by that. They would take... They took the oxen, they took the, uh, the bull, cut it up. That bull had to die to be on that. And in the Old Covenant, that would be representative of the sin of mankind. But in Romans 12, 2, we are commanded to become living sacrifices, to place ourselves on the altar, to be willing to come and let the, the flesh of me, to let the, the fleshly nature of me die so that his life can come and live inside of me. I don't know how many times I've seen people kneel at an altar and they're at their wit's end. They're at the end of themselves and they lay themselves out in a symbolic way at an altar and to see them walk away with new life. It's a beautiful picture. And that's what happens. We die to self so that we may live. And the Scriptures uses this paradox all the time about death to life. And we have to look at that at the altar. Thirdly is this. It's a place of offering. It's, it's giving unto God. And, and notice what Elijah gave. Elijah didn't give, uh, he didn't give some cheap gift to God. He poured all of that water. Where he got it, I don't completely know. But the people had to be freaking out. He's giving the best thing unto God right here. You know, we have a temptation to give God the leftovers. God, if I have a little more time... I will give it to you. If I have a little more resources and finances, God, I will give it to you. If I have a little bit more of this, we give God the leftovers instead of giving him the best of what we have. You know, when we have an offering here at the church, it's usually an, just a, a token kind of thing. Is how we, I appreciate Brett so much in setting it up to let you know that this is an act of worship. One of the most setting-free things for Pam and I financially is when we finally agreed that it would be the first fruits of what we had to give unto the Lord, not the end-of-the-month leftovers. 
And let me tell you, God is blessed. Are we the richest people in the world? God knows not to make us rich. Yeah, we're rich compared to the rest of the world, but He knows what He's doing, and we have been blessed. But I believe there's something about the first fruits that we give, not the leftovers. And, and it's a place of offering. Here's the fourth thing, and I love this. The altar is a place of new dreams. You know, how many times do we have um, those dreams that we had have gotten shattered? Or those dreams that we made up on our own, you know, that I'm going to be this way or I'm going to be this way or I'm going to be this way. And then all of a sudden life hits you in the face and they're not that way anymore. I've seen many people just come and be able to come to an altar and God just bursts new dreams. Don't you, don't you want that sometimes? God, I just need new dreams from you. And let me tell you, I don't care how old you are, he's willing to birth new dreams. New dreams. One more thing about an altar. It's a place of victory and rest. Doesn't that sound attractive? A place of victory and rest. A place where we can come and lay it before God, knowing that He fights the battle, that I don't have to fight it. He may use me somehow in the battle, but he, it's a victory in His hands. It's not determined on me. And I'm able to come and say, God, here you go. I give it to you. And we can come and lay it there. And I want you to know something about the altar. When you come and symbolically lay things on these steps that we call an altar, I want you to know we clean them out as soon as the service is over. You don't have to pick them up next week. They're gone. But it's a place of victory. So what? What does this have to do with us and what you're talking about today? What does it have to do with 25 years? Um, We've seen a lot of victories at altars. But there's three things I just want to lay out to you. Number one is this. I believe that we live in a day of spiritual drought in our nation. I believe it's a day of spiritual drought. There's a lot of activity going on. There's a lot of action going on. There's a lot of activism taking on. But I believe that we're doing a lot of it in the strength of man, and we're in a spiritual drought. I see it. I mean, you see it. You see evil prevail. You see, you see the things that are taking place. You see the attack upon things and, and, in our nation that just blow your mind. I think about where we were 25 years ago, just starting what Central was going to be and, and, and looking at our nation then and looking at it now. I would have never been able to draw up the scenarios of the battle we, we have today. But what I've seen is I see a spiritual drought. I see evil rampant. I see moral decay continues. I see spiritual apathy is is epidemic. I see a lot of action, but I don't see the power of God much. It's like uh, the the Native American chief who got to come to America, uh, uh, excuse me, got to go to a, a service in a church, a revival service. And the guy got up there and he's preaching and preaching and preaching. And they asked the, the chief afterwards, what do you think? He said, well, there was a lot of thunder and a lot of lightning but no rain. And I think that's what we have sometimes. We have a lot of thunder, a lot of lightning, but no rain. And here's the deal. I'm just going to be transparent. We can talk ourselves into thinking it's rain, but when it's really not. Just being honest. I think there's everybody in this room 
probably said there was a fire in your life a little bit brighter than it is now. What happened? I mean, is it the church's fault? Maybe. The preacher's fault? Probably. But we're just praying, God, we're in drought. The second thought that I want to bring right behind that is, is that God desires to bring rain. The rain of His presence. The rain of His power. The rain of His life where there's death. He wants to bring this rain to us. I really believe it. I believe He he just desires to pour out the rain of His presence. Don't you? I mean, if you don't believe that, then, then man, we're to be pitied. But I read His Word and I see... I see what He's done and I say, God, do it again. Just do it again. In spite of us, do it again. Third thought is this. This is where I want to lay it out to us. It's time for us to rebuild the altar. Well, Mark, you have these steps every week you call an altar. No, this is just steps. It is an altar. There's an altar in your heart that you need to rebuild. I think there's there's the rebuilding of that altar of of, of uh, worship and offering and sacrifice that we come and we rebuild because the worship's not what it once was. Yeah, we sing songs. Yeah, we we raise our hands. Yeah, we do that. But but I'm telling you, what is the altar of your heart really like? These steps, yes, I call you to these steps, but I call you to these steps because you need to work on your heart, just like I do. And. We need to rebuild the altar. The altar is for everyone. The altar is a place of surrender. And hear this. I wrote this down. The altar is a place of safety, yet danger. I think the biggest we stand is when we're on our knees. I think the, I think the enemy trembles when we're on our knees at the altar. God is calling us to the altar. I thought about I thought about something this morning just when we were in the in the time after the service today. I thought, you know, winter's coming, what little winter we have here. A day of winter. But you know, every t- every now and then we get those ice storms, you know, that come that just sleets and then it gets icy. And one of the biggest struggles we have around here is trees' limbs that begin to break. But you watch an evergreen, and when it ices and snows, it lets it off. I think so often, this is what I think, and I think I'm, I'm on with this. There's times that we get broken. A lot of times that it's pride, and the things of life just come on us and come on us and come on us. And then we just finally just break. I think the altar is one of those evergreen places where we can just let it go with the Lord. Let it go with Him. Now, I really need your attention. Um, I, 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 when I pull out my journal, you always, I, I would worry. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, I don't share in this... In fact, I've told Pam, I said, I'm not going to write a book while I'm alive because I, I, I would feel terrible if I screwed up somewhere and didn't finish strong. But when I die and if I finish strong, go find all my journals and you, you can write it all up. And uh, 
that was a prophecy that I'm going to die before you, I think. Uh, that's scary. Uh, Ash? Yeah, okay, all right. Go to the next generation. But I was Friday. I just was going before the Lord, just looking at this 25 years and everything. And I was reading of all places. Stick with me on this. I was reading in the book of Ezekiel because that's where I was in my reading. And so I'm, I'm going through Ezekiel here. And, uh, you, you know, this is the way God works with me, okay? I read. See, I believe the Word of God is living and active. I believe it's not just paper and ink. I believe it's not just history and poems and stories. I believe God uses it to speak to us today. And so that's why I spend time in it every day, not to get the stories. I've already got the stories. I've read from Genesis to maps many times over. But but it's to read it and to see, God, what are you saying to me today? So I'm reading Ezekiel of all places. And Ezekiel is talking about the Jerusalem is going to come under siege and all these things are going to happen, that, that it's going to be destroyed and all this kind of stuff. I'm reading, yeah, 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 I've read this many times over. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 7, verse 15, I read this. It says this, There is war outside the city and disease and famine within. And then I just kept on reading. And it was like, I don't want this to sound so mystical that you, you think Mark's freaky. But it was like the Holy Spirit just grabbed my heart. It's happened many times. The, the, the Greeks had a word for it. You know, logos means word. There was a little word they had called rhema. It's when it becomes bold face all of a sudden. And it was like the Holy Spirit just grabbed my heart and said, Mark, read that again. So I read it again. There is war outside the city and disease and famine within. And then all of a sudden, man, this deep heaviness just came on my heart. Because, you know, it was talking about Jerusalem, but we know that there's going to be a new Jerusalem. But, you know, I think many times the church is equated as the Jerusalem, that center of our following Christ. Then I read it again. There's war outside the church, but there's disease and famine within. And I, so I'm going to let you in on my private life just a little when it comes to journaling. And this is what I wrote. This is a disturbing verse. I can see how it might be a warning to the church today. Outside of the church, we see evil and the results of those who fall prey to the evil that abounds. Murder, abuse, trafficking, moral decay, breakdown of family, terrorism, suicide, on and on. All of these are taking place every moment of every day. But in the church, there is disease and famine. Disease and famine are a picture of lack of health, a slow death. Life is being sucked out. Worship is shallow. Marriages are dissolving. Apathy abounds. Faith is more in the innovative thoughts of men than in the supernatural infilling of God. Where is life? Where will it come from? I don't want to receive this word. War or disease or famine. It all leads to death. Only God. Only His 
Spirit. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest in His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. I, as soon as the Lord started doing a download on me with that, I told him, I, this, is, this sounds so freaky mystical, doesn't it? It's like, oh, yeah. It's like you've got a personal relationship with him or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is literally what I said. God, I don't want to receive this message. I don't want to. I hesitated to even write it in my journal. God, I do not want to receive this message. Because you see, I love you so dearly. I knew that first of all, God was going to be saying, Mark, you've got to lead in this, but you've got to share it with the people. That's scary. Following God through Jesus Christ can be dangerous. But He loves us so much and He desires so much for His church. And this hit me well ago as I was praying before this service. Central, we've got to put the last 25 years on the altar. Burn it away, God. So you can burn it. God, so you can birth a new thing. To God be the glory. It happens at the altar.